The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one. Dave Rubin, welcome to the Into the Impossible podcast, a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. Brian, it's good to be with you. I'm looking forward yeah. to chatting. Yeah, I've been a fan of yours for, for many years now, followed you for a long time, and I want to get into all that. And of course, your uh, fantastic new book, which I had a chance to devour this weekend. And uh, that's pretty high praise given all the other stuff going on in life. <laughs> <laughs> so first, I want to start off with, uh, with a, you know, just a quick uh, question for you. And, and, and that is, uh, you grew up in Long Island, as did I. Oh, all right. Where are you yeah. from? What town? Uh, I'm from Stony Brook. So I grew up in Stony Brook, the real island. We're talking Suffolk yeah. County here. <laughs> and what yes, about you? I am, I am a child of Nassau County. Ah, okay. So we're, well. we're sort of enemies, but let's see if we can work it through over the next hour. Exactly. They're the nicest friends to real Long Islanders ever. <laughs> How'd you lose the accent? Did you, go, did you have the surgery too, like I did? You know what's funny is people always say to me that I sound more like I'm from the Midwest, or usually what they say to me is I sound like Yogi Yogi Bear or or Fozzie <laughs> or something like that. I don't. This is just the way I've always spoke, but I never had that real hardcore Long Island accent. Uh, though there are a few words, you know, I say orange juice. Most people say yeah. orange juice. Uh, and what do you put your pencils in at your desk when you slide it out? What do you Drawer. call that thing? Drawer, but drawer, yeah. but I say draw. It's a draw. draw. It's we, a draw. we drop the R's at the end. That's right. Um, but I've been slowly trying to fix some of that stuff. But yeah. I have a great affinity to actually to like the New York, that real New York accent, that real Jersey accent. I'm watching, I'm rewatching The Sopranos right now in the midst of quarantine also. And there's something about that, the, the, it's not just the way they speak in terms of the tone, but there's like a real feeling to it. There's like a mm -hmm. real, like you're really conveying something with the, with the language. And I yeah. do love that. Yeah. I would say, uh, Long Islanders are the Canadians of New York. You know, <laughs> <laughs> nobody doesn't like Long Islanders. Right. So yeah. except our hockey team. Um, well, I want to get, uh, get to the book. I want to talk some big picture stuff. Um, you probably don't know this, but, uh, this show is, is pretty apolitical and I like to keep it that way because I feel like there's so much politics and the work that you do and our mutual friends do on both sides of the aisle but I also feel like you know we need a safe space from from politics in the sense that we need sports or entertainment to, to largely be free of it so I like to give this and I always give my little spiel is that you know there's no uh, the reason I like astronomy is that there's no like Republican comets and you know Democratic <laughs> constellations yeah so, yeah <laughs> that's right yeah so although yeah we, we may be going there if Space Force uh, has its chance um, so I wanted to just, you know, start off with that. We'll get into politics inevitably because I think that's sure. a big function of your book and and in your role in society as a as an influencer and a, and a media uh, titan over your over your empire there. But first, I want to say uh, the book starts off with with you know a lot of really personal uh, details, which you know I'm sure were you know a, a little bit uh, unnerving perhaps to do, especially as a first time author, uh, you know, to come out with your first book and then to really spill your guts. And you know, Herm Hemingway used to say alleged. Uh, that the job of a writer is to sit in front of a typewriter and bleed. And uh, I wonder, you know, when you were, when you're going through this, since you have experienced so much of the good and we'll get to the good and the bad, obviously later, but um, was that something you were, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you had any trepidation about, you know, being so personal, the book is really uh, endears the reader because you are so personal and candid about your life's affairs. Yeah. Uh, so I will answer your question, but quickly, I just want to hit what you said there about a safe space and that not everything should be so political and all that, because I think it's an important part. And actually, that's really how I end. That's yeah. chapter 10 of the book in many ways. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I don't like the idea of safe spaces within a university context where we're going to protect kids from dangerous ideas. I actually think that's completely antithetical to learning and every reason that they should be on college campuses. However, the spirit of what you just said there, that we should have spaces where politics, especially partisan politics, don't leak into everything. That is deeply, deeply important because we live in a time in the last five years where politics has leaked into everything to the point that you know that if you turn on ESPN and you're watching SportsCenter, most likely there's something political happening. You're yeah. very rarely watching, well, now we're watching no sports highlights, but even without Corona, before that, it was about identity politics. It was about racism. It was about standing for the flag or sitting for the flag or a series of other things. And we desperately do need those places to have sports or culture or art 
or science, mm -hmm. things that we can discuss that have nothing to do with the political world. So I, I just want to put that out there that I'm, I, I love that, generally yeah. speaking. As to, to specifically to your question, that was the hardest part for me. When, when I started writing this and when I signed the deal originally, and I mentioned this right at the top of the book, I was going to write why I left the left. And that, that's a phrase that has become attached to me because of a PragerU video that I did a couple years ago. It has something like 20 million views. And I was going to write, I was a lefty. Now I'm not a lefty. Here's what happened. And as I was writing that, I started realizing I didn't want to just write a book about what I'm against. I want to write a book that's about what I'm for. And that's really what Don't Burn This Book became. And then through that, um, this was and is my first book, as you said, um, you know, as I discussed things with my editor and we tried to, you know, piece together something that would, you know, make cohesive sense and take, take everybody on a journey and not just be sort of like bang, 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 like plow through everything in, in one very linear shot. Um, it became more and more obvious that I had to include some of the personal stuff in. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things that I, I did pretty effectively is I'm trying to get people out of the political closet because I really do believe that exists. I think there are good, decent people who refuse to say what they think, not because they're racists or bigots or haters or anything like that, but just because the positions they hold are a little outside of the woke opinion of the day, and they're afraid that the mob's going to come get them. So I liken that to what it was like to be in the closet sexually. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's actually a tremendous amount of overlap there. And I think that's going to be one of the things that I, I think will be most effective in showing people why you have to come out. Because it's, it's very hard to live one life. It's hard to live one life that makes sense, that gives you purpose and a little bit of joy and all authentic, of that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, what authentic and you and all that. That's really hard to do. It's, as a matter of fact, it's your job as a person to do it, to do it. And most of us shirk that, that responsibility, but now try to do it as two people, as three people, as four people. And the more that you're in the closet for whatever it is, your sexuality, your political thoughts, whatever, a family secret, whatever you're in the closet for, whatever you hide to yourself and don't show the world, uh, it'll end up owning you. And I think a lot of people are, are seeing some version of that right now. So I tried to go into the personal stuff as much as possible. I will tell you this, uh, the only chapter that we ended up cutting from the book was when I really, really did a deep dive into some further personal stuff. And I think I'm gonna ultimately save that for another book because it was, that was the, the, the trick to this was trying to write something personal, but also that really was, the real reason was to highlight the ideas. So, yeah. you know, there's always that balance. I think probably most authors have to deal with, with some version of that. That's right, yeah. I mean, it struck me as I was reading that and you, yeah, you're very candid as I say about, you know, coming out of the closet. And, you know, the first thing that struck me is, you know, for a comic, you, you've got pretty lousy timing because we came out of the closet on 9-10-2001, ah. uh, yeah. the, uh, the eve uh, before September 11th, the awful events. So, and then this book is out during the greatest crisis, you know, of our lives in many ways. It's like, what, what happens with your timing there? You know, I got to... There is... <laughs> next time you make a major life decision, Dave, you got to let us know a little bit ahead of time. I should be playing the markets better you should be, I yeah. have this incredible power. Um, no, we actually... It, yeah, it's actually true. I mean, technically, it was it was nine eleven because it was it was twelve thirty a.m. <laughs> on on nine eleven. So literally, just you know, about mm. seven hours wow. before the, the the attacks. And I lived in New York City at the time, and I was in the Times Square subway station. Mm. I'm sure many of of your viewers can picture yeah. the exact spot, right where the the shuttle train that goes from Times Square to Grand Central. I was standing right there with my buddy. Yep. He lived in Queens. I lived on the Upper West, so we were saying goodbye, and and I came out to him, which was the first person that I had come out to. And then, you know, seven hours later, America was under attack. And, and it truly, that truly damaged me. I, you know, like I had held this, what I thought was this horrific secret in for so long. And then I finally released it into the universe. And next thing I know, America's under attack. Mm. Um, and not just America's under attack, but the city I live in yeah. is under attack. And it true, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it did some serious damage to my psyche. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And, you know, I think a lot of people are probably grappling with this, you know, we're 20 years younger, you know, basically the same age roughly you were at that time. And going through this is going to be the same kind of cathartic experience. And, I, you know, I only hope that people can deal with it and get the mental help that they need and and deal with, you know, the self-care, et cetera. And I want to get into that because you have so many good tips you know, the, the Arthur, this podcast, the Into the Impossible podcast about high, high achievers, high performers, and kind of how you get to this level of intellectual 
um, you know, the, the style, the, the, the techniques, the tactics that you use to get to this, you know, really, really prominent level. But I think people can also learn a lot from the personal. And I think uh, that's, that's, you're to be commended for that. I, I do want to talk about the book uh, starting off, you know, it's got blurbs from, you know, I call it the, the, uh, the usual crew of, of kind of the, the, the blogospherics uh, that, that you associate with, Ben Shapiro, uh, your mentor, Jordan Peterson. I do want to spend some, some time on him um, and, and many other luminaries. Uh, but one that surprised me, it might surprise some of you know, our, our listeners and the readers, is from Eckhart Tolle. And he said, Dave Rubin is bridging, uh, is, uh, bridging America's great divide. He reminds us that while we might not always agree with the, quote, other, we need to listen, capital letters, to them. Rubin has mastered the vital skills of listening and asking questions that do not serve an ideological agenda. I think a lot of times you're unfairly, you know, portrayed in this light in the media that you're just, a, you know, either right wing or, you know, you're kind of whatever the, the analog is for, for um, you know, betraying one's, one's uh, class that they're supposed to be representative of. I think you do a wonderful job of actually people do take the time to listen to you. Uh, they'll find out that you do have this, you know, catchphrase, of course, classical liberalism. I want to get into that. But, you know, as, as Eckhart Tolle, who is this master, uh, the author of the, you know, world famous bestselling book, The Power of Now, uh, he's really like a spiritual guru. And the people that he's influenced are so f diametrically opposed to, say, the far, the other people on the cover. Um, not, not that I don't know anything about his politics, and I'm mm -hmm. happy that I don't, because I think we need this detox, and, and hopefully we'll get into that. But um, I, I do want to talk about the book. You've got a copy behind you. Uh, I got a digital copy and, and, and really loved reading it. Um, you mentioned, you spend a little bit of time in the book talking about the process of writing the book and, and even the painstaking detail that you went in on the cover. And uh, like you, and unlike the proverb, I judge books by their covers. And, <laughs> and, and I think publishers do too, because yeah. it's the one thing authors are not allowed to have much uh, control over. You know, they can have their say and so forth, but really the publishers know this from, it's their livelihood to know that. I wanna, what does the cover mean to you? I wanna, I wanna uh, share some feelings about what it meant to me, but what does it mean to you? It's, it's, a, it's a unique and interesting cover, and we'll have a picture of it, obviously, uh, in the video. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Yeah. So as you know, I'm in the midst of doing a ton of press right now for this. And uh, I'll, get, I'll drop something with you that I haven't dropped publicly elsewhere exclusive. yet. This is exclusive. So, the, so there were several titles of the book. As I mentioned, Why I Left the Left was the original working title. And on the deal that I signed, that's what it said it was going to be. And then there was a day in New York. Uh, I, I was in New York for some meetings with the people at, at Penguin Random House. And I was getting hit by the media for exactly what you just described. He's a right-wing maniac and all this stuff. And it's like, no matter how many times I lay out what my lefty cred is, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I describe in the book, I'm begrudgingly pro-choice. I, I happen to actually be gay married. I'm not just saying I'm for gay marriage. Right, I'm for, right, we're in the process of surrogacy right now. I'm, I'm in, um, you know, I'm against the death penalty. I'm for some level of public education. I could lay out all of my lefty cred but unfortunately, with the new woke uh, sort of hysterical left that has, that has arisen, there is no room for dissension over there. So people just associate now, so associate me with the right, which I don't mind being associated with, by the way. I have found mm -hmm. conservatives and libertarians, especially classical liberals and cat people, to be open and willing to agree to disagree. And there's such fertile ground to battle out ideas. And I, and I love that. I absolutely love that. What mm -hmm. I don't want to do is I don't want to be called far right. I don't want to be called alt right. Things that the New York Times has called me and, and a bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm, I'm in New York City taking all these meetings with Penguin. And I had decided that I didn't want to do the why I left the, the left book. And then I'm suddenly getting hit by the media and they're calling me far right and the rest of it. And I go into the meeting with Penguin and I said, you know what? I've got a new title for the book. I want to call it um, right wing lunatic. Because my feeling was, if this is what these people are going to say about me, why don't I write a book that's filled with common sense, filled with decent ideas, time-tested, churned ideas that, that uh, spread freedom and liberty, and I'll embrace this thing that people are saying I am, a right-wing lunatic. <laughs> so the, the head of Penguin said, they all kind of like it, you know, I'm sitting at this big table, and they all kind of 
bouncing their heads up and down. And then the, the head of Penguin says, well, instead of right-wing lunatic, why don't we call it the memoir of a right-wing lunatic? And that reminded me, do you remember there was a Chevy Chase movie in the 80s or early 90s called Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Do you yes. remember that movie? By yeah. any chance? I always liked that movie. <laughs> I liked the title. So I thought that was it. And then I was like, you know what, if we're going to go that far, let's even add. And we were at one point going to call it the crazed rantings of a right-wing lunatic. And I left that meeting saying that's what the title is because I thought we'll embrace it. It flips it on its head. Yeah. It, it, Own it your truth. Allow, <laughs> Own your truth. It will allow me to go into interviews that maybe are hostile and mm -hmm. feel funny too because yeah. they're going to introduce me as you know the crazed rantings of a right-wing lunatic and then I'll be able to just lay out some basic common sense stuff. And Yada, yada, yada. To answer your question, I brought that idea home to my husband and he could not believe that I was considering such a psychotic title. And, and then what happened was when, uh, when we were mocking up all sorts of books and Penguin was doing it and we were you know, playing around on Photoshop and stuff, one of the ideas we had, regardless of what the title was, was that we were going to have a red band around the book that was going to say, don't burn this book. Mm. And that you'd have to rip that to, to open the book. And suddenly it just hit David actually to, mm -hmm. to say, well, that should be the title of the book. And I loved it. I called my guys at CAA. They loved it. I called Jordan Peterson. He yeah. loved it. And, and we went with that. Wow. I, think it, I think it is really the right idea because the point is that there's, there's a lot of stuff in here that's going to make people angry. Mm -hmm. And I even make a point at, at one point in the abortion chapter, I, I end it by saying, you know, now that you all hate me, let's move on. But the point is, you shouldn't burn it. You don't have to love it. You don't have to love everything I write here. You don't have to agree with everything I say here. But, but these are the ideas I'm, pre I'm presenting. And let's live in a calmer time when, when book burning uh, yeah. leaves, you know, done. That's, that's sort of what I wanted to share with you, my impression of the book. And may, maybe it was uh, you know, subliminal or, or whatever. Or maybe it's colored by my you know, affinity for science fiction and being, uh, you know, co-directing the Arthur C. Clarke Center, which obviously Arthur C. Clarke was a master of yeah. science nonfiction, but also science fiction, 2001. The master. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite books as a kid uh, was Fahrenheit 451. And this is Ray Bradbury's classic book uh, from the 1950s. And, you know, I don't think it's possible to spoiler a book that's that old. You know, if you <laughs> I have think a... it's okay. I think it's okay now. <laughs> I think you, you've been talking recently about The Matrix a lot on your show. And you're like, yeah. I, I, I don't even have to say spoiler alert because you haven't seen it in 20 years. You're, you're, it's not going to be a, a spoiler for you. But, uh, but that book, Fire Night 451, is a dystopian novel that uh, Ray wrote uh, in the context of the McCarthy era book burnings that were going on or, you know, uh, uh, desires on the far right and literally uh during the mccarthy era to 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 burn books and he thought of it as a as a commentary uh, against that notion uh it's allegedly the temperature he was told at which paper begins to burn and uh and the end of the book also kind of and again no spoiler alerts needed but um but but the the book concludes with uh, a, a call, you know, a clarion call that people should, uh, instead of burning books and having, you know, these, these buildings where books are burned, they should instead build a building filled with mirrors uh, and so that society can look at themselves. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're, we're spending so much time nowadays, you know, looking in these black mirrors, and, and you talk a lot about that. Um, and how does that tie into, uh, you know, I thought it was sort of a, a nice callback to that, the book, you know, don't burn this book, it reminded me of that, that this could be dystopian. You know, if people, I don't think people are literally going to burn your book, uh, but, but the, the notion of it as a, as a psychological uh, concept, I think, you know, there is, a, there is a certain amount of hostility. But back then, as I said, it was really the McCarthy era, far right. And I wonder if you see that coming from these little black mirrors that we all have, uh, does that now kind of manifest itself in, in a completely different way, decentralized, uh, you know, to spread out and, and how a society interacts with it to effectively not burn, but cancel this book. Like, don't cancel yeah. this book. Uh, that's a great question, and there's so much there. And I'm a big sci-fi guy, too, and so much of the way I view the world is because I don't want us to end in a dystopian future. I don't want the machines to take over from Terminator. I don't want to have to end up living on Mars like Total Recall or being the battery like in The Matrix. Or, it, or, or you know, one of the beautiful things about Fahrenheit 451 is that many of the people that were doing the burning were secretly having thoughts that were for, free thoughts. That's right. And in many ways, that caused them to do more burning because they had to hide their, you know, I mean, this is, there's a very religious sort yeah. of repress yourself and then destroy the other sort of notion in that. Um, I would say I'm, I'm very 
You know, it's funny. I, I describe myself as a world-weary optimist. I, I don't think you could do roughly what I do for a living, meaning putting your thoughts out there, talking to people you agree and disagree with, and, and being very public about what you think, if you didn't have some level of optimism. Because the hope is that by doing all of this, taking like the the full gestalt of everything that I do, that maybe I'll have elevated the world a little bit. Maybe I will have done a little bit of what those incredibly kind words that Eckhart Tolle wrote about me. Maybe a little bit of that will translate into the real world. Mm. Um, but I am worried that especially now, especially now as we are all trapped at home and we still don't know how much longer we're gonna be trapped at home, yeah. that the dystopian version of the future in many ways is coming true in front of us right now. We're, we're all trapped at home. We all know that big tech has an endless cascade of problems. And yet we now are more reliant on big tech than ever. So a year ago, if you were arguing, well, big tech should be regulated or we need more competition or whatever that might be, or the algorithms are coming to get us, or we have to worry about shadow banning or de-boosting or all of these things. If you were worried about that a year ago, you know, it's very interesting because very few people are talking about it now. And yet now, Big tech and, and the world as it is just pushed us all more into the matrix, right? Mm. We're, we're in it now more than ever. You cannot, all of your communication, the way we are doing this is through the big tech pipes. Yeah. You can't meet your friend for a beer right now. You can't go bowling with a couple of your buddies and talk about life. Uh, if you're a political, uh, uh, you know, your presidential candidate, whatever you are, you can't do, hold a rally anymore. So big tech and the the idea gatekeepers have way more control over us right this second than they did five weeks ago. That is a huge problem and something we have to be thinking about. What I keep tweeting is we're all playing a fixed game and we're pretending that the rules aren't fixed. We have mm -hmm. no idea what big tech is doing to manipulate us, to make our feeds seem this way or hide certain people or boost other people, but we know that they do it. Mm -hmm. You know, Twitter's terms of service actually has shadow banning as of January 1st of this year in their terms of service. They are wow. telling us we can, we can suppress certain people and amplify other people. Now, if Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and the rest of it are the true uh, highways of information and communication of the future, well, this is where I see a lot of conservatives saying we need regulation then. Now, the libertarian side of me doesn't want to do that. And I started a, a tech company, Locals.com, that I think is doing a, a, a nice job of cleaning up some of this mess. But these are the conversations we should be having right now because any of the things that, that you care about, about science and open inquiry and free thought, um, right now they're super dependent on a couple systems that aren't that friendly to that stuff. And I think our, our eye is off the ball right now. We're, we're sort of just not paying attention to it. And by the way, there's good reason that we're not. We're not because our immediate lives feel crazy. We can't go out. We're, we're worried about going to the supermarket and making sure we have enough food in the house. And suddenly the big tech thing doesn't seem as important. Um, but I think the longer this goes on and, and the, the after effects, the second and third order effects, I think are going to be massive. And we should be thinking about it at the same time. Yeah. So another, you know, kind of... Uh thing that came to mind as I you know, look at your book and, and read through it is, you know, also involves burning and, and heat. And uh, as I'm sure you're familiar from your extensive studies of the laws of thermodynamics, uh, uh, which state that the, oh, yes. the, yes, end, yes. <laughs> the second only law when I'm not studying string theory, my friend. <laughs> Uh, that's right. Well, we need all the all the stringy stringiness we can get nowadays. So uh, the second law of thermodynamics in particular says that the entropy or chaos or disorder um, of a system, you know, cannot decrease over time. It can only go in one direction. And, you know, in the book and, and, and in the publicity for the book, you talk about uh, liberalism and you say defend liberal liberalism while you still can. Time is running out to defend individual rights, limited government and free expression. So, you know, given that the law of, you know, conservation of, or the law of, of, of second law of thermodynamics is that things are going to get more and more chaotic. Is it really, you know, concomitant with that, that the, that we can't go back if we lose these uh, freedom of speech rights that we enjoy today? Ah, that's a good one. There's a lot there. This is where, are you familiar with Michael Malice by any chance who I've had on the show a couple of times? I, I've name? heard him on your show, but I, I'm not, I'm, I don't recall exactly that. So, so Michael Malice is what I would describe as sort of a extreme libertarian, sort of like an ANCAP type. And his, his constant argument is just that, hmm. that the thing's always spinning out of control and that, and that conservatives even really aren't conserving. They're just sort of slowing the speed limit along the way to chaos, let's mm. say, something like that. I've sort of come around to that general belief 
Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not a reason to do it. Um, I think we have to preserve good ideas for as long as we can. Mm -hmm. The 200 plus years of the United States have been some of the freest, most prosperous years that humanity has ever seen. Actually, all of them, uh, all of the years have been. And more people from more walks of life come to the United States and flourish and still do to this day. And even right now, as, as a certain set of people in the United States scream that, that Hitler is in charge, which is absurd, um, nobody leaves. They don't leave. You know, and, and one of the things is that if you wanted to leave under Hitler, he wouldn't let you leave, right? That caused a lot of deaths. Mm -hmm. Trump's not forcing anyone to stay, and people still do want to come here. Right. And the reason for that is that the ideas of classical liberalism, the idea of individual rights, everyone is treated the same under the law. It doesn't, ma it doesn't mean that some people aren't born with more. It doesn't mean that some people aren't born luckier. It doesn't mean that some people won't work harder or a series of other things that make up the human experience. But equal laws, which by the way, as brilliant as our founders were, and as, as incredible and revolutionary truly as our founding documents were, it doesn't mean it was all perfect at the time, right? We had slaves mm -hmm. and then we freed the slaves. Women couldn't vote and then women could vote. We had Japanese internment temporarily. I mean, we've done bad things, but the ARC has consistently, always, with, with virtually no exception, the ARC has always bent towards more true justice for more people. Now, I don't mean social justice. I mean justice in terms of equality of opportunity. That's what we have right now, and we, but we are running out of room to defend it because, mm. look, right now, Right now, regardless of what you think about how we should be on lockdown or quarantine or regardless of what you think about coronavirus as a whole, right now, the Fourth Amendment, in effect, is suspended. We don't have the right to assemble right now. Mm -hmm. Now, we should be having a discussion about that. Can that go on forever in the name of public safety? I don't know exactly what the answer is there, but we should be, we should be talking about it, but very few people are talking about it. Um, right now, let's say you are a, let's say you thought coronavirus was a complete hoax and a government grab for power. I don't believe that, but should you be allowed to voice those opinions on social media without being banned? And is that a violation of the First Amendment, even though social media companies aren't necessarily part of the government, although there are a lot of ties there? I think that's certainly a, a conversation worth having. So all of these things lead to what your question is, which is if this thing is just spinning sort of more and more out of control, and right now it does feel like our system is in this odd place of, it, it feels like a Jenga set, basically, our system right now, right? Precarious. And we're yeah. yeah, and we're, it's in a precarious place. And by the way, not just our system. I don't, you know, I, I talk about a lot of this stuff through an American context, but of course this is a worldwide situation right now. Um, but what we have to be doing is defending the right ideas when it's the hardest to defend them. Mm. And, and these are not, you know, the ideas that you just mentioned, these are pretty simple things, individual rights and limited government so that you can do what you're, with your life what you wish. This is pretty basic stuff and we just have to reignite that within yeah. people. Because I think once they understand it, they actually are drawn to it, which is a beautiful thing. What do you think about the rise of, of this movement, kind of a back reaction in some sense? Uh, your book, uh, Michael Shermer's book, uh, who I had in the show last week, uh, Giving the Devil His Due, um, and works Ben Shapiro's were, uh, book, um, that they kind of are really this full-throated advocacy for things that we used to take for granted, you know, the, the, the First Amendment, um, you know, and you're saying the Fourth Amendment, these, these aspects of, of the former America. And yet, you know, many of we don't perceive, you know, jackbooted the coming from Washington, D.C. I mean, it's pretty darn nice. I mean, California is, uh, you know, if you, if you have to be uh, sheltering at home, it's one of the best places in the world, uh, I think, to do so. Obviously, I haven't left. And the, I, sun, I, the sun is shining today. I'm not yeah, complaining. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't tell my boss, you know, Gavin Newsom that, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd work at the University of California even if he didn't pay me because I do <laughs> love this place. Uh, so, you know, what is there a danger in kind of overblowing, you know, with all these books, all these works, and, and as erudite as they are, uh, that people are just not going to take it seriously because, you know, they look around their life, they say, there are no, no thugs, you know, cramming down, you know, disc pulling my, my Ethernet port. I, I don't have a million followers like Dave Rubin. So, you know, I mean, poor, poor Dave Rubin, you know, he's going to have 999,000 uh, because of mm -hmm. shadow banning. Um, man, there's a lot there. You're, you're, you're nailing it with the question. Sorry. <laughs> that much. No, no, no. You're, you're giving me good. Two stuff. Long Islanders, you know, it's, uh, no, I, I love it. And... 
No, I love it though because you're giving me the stuff that sort of lays right underneath the the, the idea set, which is mm-hmm. which is I think what a good interviewer should do. So, um, is there a risk in that that because right now the government isn't running to our houses and stopping us, that maybe we're overblowing it or something like that? Well, my first answer would be that if you look at sort of this crew, some of the names that you just mentioned there, so Shapiro and Michael Shermer, um, and if you threw in Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, yes. you said we'll get to in a few other people. What an interesting, diverse group of thinkers. Now, these have, they happen to be white men. Some of them are straight, some of them are gay. You could throw Heather McDonald in there but, too. And, and no, when we could yeah. throw Heather mm-hmm. McDonald, we could throw Ayanna Hirsi we could yeah. throw mm-hmm. uh, Douglas Murray, we could throw Majid Nawaz, we could throw Thomas Sowell. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's a million people. So I'm just giving you a couple yeah. names here, let's say. But what you have there is true intellectual diversity. So even I'll even go with just the two you mentioned up top. So Shapiro and Shermer. Shapiro is an absolute believer. I mean, he, he believe, his worldview is an Orthodox Jewish worldview. Michael Shermer is a skeptic. He's a, he's a former born-again Christian mm-hmm. uh, who is now a, an atheist and a skeptic. These guys shouldn't have that much in common, except in that their existential view of the world is completely different. But what they've realized is that as organic beings here on planet Earth right now, the rights that are protecting them to think completely differently are the rights of the individual and of basically of limited government, right? That's, so I think something interesting has happened here where yes, and I talk about this in the book, by the way, that I am not worried my major worry at the moment is not that the government is going to be the thing that comes and silences me. We should always be wary of that. And most bad things that have happened over time happen because of bad governments. What I am more worried about is the average person that you're talking about who just sort of checks out. They just mm-hmm. decide, I'm not going to say what I think because I don't want to deal with the social media mob. I don't want to deal with the BuzzFeed or Huffington Post Vox hit piece, and that what they will do is they will slowly disconnect their thoughts from their daily life. And then you sort of are just a robot, and then you're sort of very easily controlled. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm worried about. So the premise of the question is a good one because Yes, is it more obvious when they go after a sort of bigger name and then it's like, ah, you could watch that guy and be like, oh, so what? He's not getting as many retweets as he used to. But that's not really what it's about. Mm-hmm. And, and the best example I can give you is why is it that virtually every week Media Matters uh, leads a campaign to get Tucker Carlson off the air? Now, I have no doubt that you have some disagreements with Tucker Carlson politically, <laughs> for sure. And I do, too, by the way. Yeah. I, go on a show, I go on a show basically every week. Right. He wants to intervene in big tech. I don't. That is a fundamental, great place to have disagreement. And we do it, dis- uh, we do it respectfully. But there's a reason they're going after Tucker. And it's not just to shut down Tucker. It's to signal to all of the people who agree to Tucker, see, if we can get him we've got you. And that's why whenever they go after Tucker, I defend him. Because yeah. it's like, we need to signal to people that they can't destroy all of us. And that to me is, you know, we, we study imagination, curiosity, creativity here at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And, you know, one of the best, most delicious things you can do in life is have a respectful conversation. And with someone you don't agree with, if you're just talking in the echo chamber, you know, as a scientist, as a, as a layperson, it's incredibly boring. I was, I was talking with a friend uh, on, uh, on Saturday afternoon on a walk uh, six feet apart, of course, if you're listening, Gavin. Uh, but he, and he was saying, you know, there's uh, seemed to be, you know, almost like a law of physics, you know, another, sorry to drop so much physics on you today, but I, I know, dig it. I, dig I know it. a string theory master like you can handle yes, it. Yes, and yes, yes. I'm also working on the theory of everything, by the way, I should have it done by the end of the day. Oh, okay, good. Well, you might get yeah. scooped. I had a guest on yesterday who's already published his, his results. So we'll, we'll leave it, we'll leave it to you all to, right, to right. co-publish. But he said, you know, I believe in, in sort of a concept of the conservation of outrage, which is that, you know, if you look back in the, in in the you know 1400s when there were serfs and they would re- rebel against feudal lords you know, it was outrageous the, the mass populace against the very few gatekeepers then it was the protests against the divine right of kings you know that came about the populace against the gatekeeper then it was you know the french revolution the aristocracy uh, now it, and then it became washington you know the po- but now it's it's sort of the the opposite the gatekeepers have become 
this distributed you know, mass and the net amount of outrage has to be maintained. Just like energy cannot be created or destroyed, outrage cannot be destroyed. You can't reduce it. Again, this one-way ratchet and Paul that cannot be reversed. And, and I wonder, you know, is that, is that a symptom uh, of, of what's going on in, in society as a whole? That yes, they may not come for you, you know, today because you're not uh, Dave Rubin or, you know, listener's not Dave Rubin, um, but, uh, but tomorrow they may come for, you know, come for you. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think looking at this need that people have, and it's never been easier to communicate. And that's why one of the things I, I love most about your book is you, you basically uh, go through this process of describing this very virtuous aspect of your life, which is called digital detox. And you, uh, you take off the whole uh, month of August as sort of a, a, a monthly sabbatical. And, and even you advocate doing it weekly as well. And I wonder, you know, one of your rules, uh, though, you know, uh, for life, uh, to quote your mentor, is, is you know, to, to spend time with your physical physical, you know, neighbors in, in meat world, you know, in real life. Uh, but you know, it's so hard to do that nowadays. In fact, it might be illegal in certain jurisdictions. So, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, this is such a crazy time, uh, but I wonder, can we talk a little bit about that? Cause one of the, you know, as I said, I like there to be a politics free zone. I like, uh, the, this notion and I'm also, you know, a practicing uh, Jew. I'm not as, uh, I'm not as, I don't do Jew as much as Ben does, but, uh, but, but the same token, it's incredibly important to my life, the meaning, my family, my children, my wife. Um, how did, how did this, you know, kind of come to you and have you seen the benefits and what are the challenges to maintaining this, uh, as I said, very virtuous, but it's, it is challenging. H- how do you maintain it? Give some tips to our listeners about how to do that, how to deal with it in this. In well, this I'll, first, I'll first give a tip of the hat to the Jewish portion of this, which I, I am Jewish as yes, well. I and I, I uh, tweeted, you know, when I'll every now and again, I take the I try to take the weekends off I, off of social media, at least. So mm-hmm. I'll still right now uh, in Corona in the last six weeks, I haven't been fully taking the weekends off. I've done some version of it because with the Ruben Report community, we watch a movie together and then we do a Zoom right. call and a, and a few other things. It reminded so, me of that wh- scene from, sorry, it reminded me of that scene from Airplane, the movie Airplane, where the air traffic controller goes, looks like I took picked the wrong month to give up cocaine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look like I picked the wrong week to stop. Good thing it's not August. Blue. It's not August yeah. for Dave Rubin. <laughs> right, exactly. Although I would do it right now if it was August and I'm really looking forward to this yeah. August for many reasons. Um, but, you know, sometimes on Fridays, as the day gets towards the end of the, the day, around five o'clock, I'll tweet out, you know, taking off for the weekend, I'll see you all on Monday. And, and Shapiro has tweeted at me a couple times and say, uh, you do know that the Jews have been doing this for about 5,000 <laughs> years. Right. It's called Shabbat. We're all so Shomer Shabbos now. Right. right. So I tell him, I tell him I'm doing an extended 48 hour Shabbat for the most time, for the most part now. That beats on, him. Yeah. On the weekends. But my, my real reasoning for doing this, I, so I've done three summers of, of August off the grid. And when I did it the first time, um, I really just wanted to try it. It was just like, wow, mm. my life has been so enriched by YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and all of this stuff. And I, and I get to do what I want for a living and I've started a successful company and I'm, I'm, I have purpose and I'm doing something that I'm really proud of. And it's, it's often hard and it comes with a lot of slings and arrows as I, as I write about in the book. But so much of my life is in this digital space. And as you referenced before with the Matrix, it's like the, the idea of the Matrix, without giving the spoiler away, <laughs> is that we, are our physical selves, our, our carbon-based selves, will become the batteries for the digital world. And in many ways, that is what's happening right now. Yeah. The digital world is now looming larger in many ways than what it seems like our physical world is. And you can really see that in a day of corona. We are spending more and more of our time staring into those black mirrors that you referenced. And that I'm fascinated by that. So I thought three years ago, let me just take a summer, a, a month in the summer, because August is when things calm down a little bit more, and mm-hmm. let's see what happens. And I literally locked my phone in a safe, no TV, no, no nothing. The one thing that I did have was that my car does have GPS in it, so I could still get places. I have a terrible right. sense of direction. But that really was it. And you know what you quickly find is, you know, I was trying to avoid news. It's very hard to avoid news because wherever there is a muted television, CNN is on. Yeah. You go to you Airport. go to the gym. Mm-hmm. You go to the gym, and I'd have to wear a low hat and I do cardio, <laughs> looking like this, because I did, You know, they've got TVs up there. You go to a burger joint, and CNN is on, or or ESPN is on. And I wanted to just uh, avoid everything. And and in the three summers that I've done it, I have managed to absolutely avoid everything. Um, you know, fortunately, I have an assistant and people that work for me that make sure that if there were massive fires with the company, right. that things are taken care of. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that we do 
do is uh, David does, uh, my husband does a, a version of this with me, but doesn't really do it because he's running the companies. But he'll try to ch only check his phone maybe once a night just to make sure everything's okay. So whatever, my point is that you don't need to set a rule like I'm absolutely not going to touch anything and it's going to be for a month and I'm going to avoid everything and all that. That's very, very hard to do. But I do say, you know, if maybe you don't have to do a month, but maybe do from Christmas to New Year's. You know, mm. everyone kind of shuts down at that time of the year. It's the time to be, it doesn't matter what religion you are, it's, it's sort of time to be with family. Or shut down just the last week of the summer if you can. And if you can't do even either of those, try it occasionally on the weekend. Start for Saturdays maybe, and then add it to Sundays or the other way around. And I think what you will find is that it will give your brain a chance to reset. And I, and I also offer some other little tips, like don't bring your phone into the bedroom. Yeah. You, you, the first thing that you do in the morning should not be looking at social media before you've brushed your teeth or had a glass of water. And certainly the last thing that you do at night, and, and there are studies on this, by the way, because of the light, that it shouldn't be the last thing that you're doing. I mean, you should either read a book or, or tucker yourself out outside of your bedroom and then just go into your room to go to sleep. Yeah. So I think all of these things, I'm not an expert in any of this, and I don't think that we've fully look, we've been handed something awesome here. It's like being handed fire at the beginning. And fire is pretty great, right? You can cook some stuff and it can warm you up. Fire can also burn you and it can also burn the house down. Yeah. And, and I think we have to start looking at tech like that. It is, it is a tool and you don't want it to burn the whole house down while you're warming up the place. And don't burn the book as well. And don't burn that book, <laughs> which burns at 451. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I want to move to mainly a you know, touchy subject for you. And, and feel free, you don't have to answer. We can always I will it, answer. Edit out. So uh, you've written a book. You come highly endorsed from, uh, from your friend, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, who's become you know, incredibly controversial, but incredibly successful. Um, you talk about the power power of having mentors and you talk about the um the image that he's cultivated and how it matched the reality that you observed as the opening act on a year-long tour with jordan during his uh 12 uh 12 rules for life world tour everywhere around the world australia and back and, and uh in the u.s in many shows um you even brought him up on stage to do a comedy uh, set it's 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 quite uh, it's quite touching to see that He's your, he's your mentor. He's your, he's your friend. It seems like he's a little bit of a father figure to you as he is to, you know, presumably many people around the world. I, I've never met him. I, I haven't had the chance to read the book yet, but I know how influential he was. Given that he talks so much about self-care and given that you have obviously become enlightened to this notion of taking care of yourself, your husband, hopefully soon your, your child uh, to, to come, that, that, um, that being aware of self-care, do you feel like he let he let you down in any way. I mean, he, he's had struggles with addiction and, and there's, and he's been very candid about that and, and his children as well. I wonder how did that affect you when you found out about that? If, if you care to talk about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I, the one word answer to the question is, do I feel like he let me down is no, without question, but mm -hmm. I will, I will expand on that obviously. Um, first off, you know, when we were on tour for that year plus, and it was 120 stops in, in something like 23 countries, something like that. Um, Jordan was very open that he was taking a very small amount of benzo of, I think, clonopin mm -hmm. for anti-anxiety. He would talk about it on stage, actually. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't, first off, you know, I think a lot of people think he was like secretly doing drugs and, no, no. or secretly a, a pill popper or something like that, and then publicly presenting something else. So first off, I want to be 100% clear that is simply not true. That's mm -hmm. number one. Number two, we were in the middle of the country. I, I think we were in Iowa. We were having lunch and, you know, he does this carnivore diet. So he, the guy has a ribeye for breakfast, usually a ribeye for lunch and two ribeyes or a tomahawk uh, for dinner. Steak, that's it. You know, He's steak, the only Canadian, the only Canadian yeah. who does that, right? He, a, a rugged Canadian. In Texas. In Texas. Um, <laughs> but, but we were at lunch at a steakhouse, I think in Iowa, when he got the call uh, from the doctor and his wife that his wife had been uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. I was at lunch with him and I, and I heard the phone call. Eventually mm -hmm. I, I walked away from the table. Mm -hmm. um, I saw this man not only, I mean, try to imagine the incredible highs of fame, the, the rigor of traveling like crazy, the media hit pieces and the good stuff, the, the audiences cheering and the protesters. I mean, the entire up and down craziness then he finds out his wife has terminal cancer. He's traveling sometimes with her, sometimes without her. I mean, the extraordinary, truly extraordinary pressures. And by the way, you have to keep in mind that this isn't a guy, this isn't like 
a um, a comedian or an actor. Right, he's used to going on the road, right, in vaudeville. But, right. <laughs> but that was chasing fame. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a, a comedian or an actor, they're usually chasing fame, and then one day, if they're lucky, they become famous. This is a guy who is a clinical psychologist who is writing writing books that are pretty pretty dense idea books, right? So he didn't chase this thing and suddenly he had this thing. Anyway, adding all of that up and then and then the fact that his uh, his wife was diagnosed with this terminal cancer, um, he did, I, I didn't know it at the time, but he did end up upping the amount of benzo. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to even go into that any further. Yeah. Suffice to say that people can have an adverse reaction. You can actually have the type of reaction where you up it and you get the reverse where it's supposed to be anti-anxiety and then it becomes more anxiety. Mm-hmm. What I will tell you is this. I, I did see him a couple months ago. He's doing better. It's, yep. it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. And more than anything else, and I think this will directly answer your question, he's a human. Yeah. He's a human. The guy wrote an incredible book. I've got it right there, 12 Rules for Life and, and Maps of Meaning even before that. He wrote a life giving people what he views as a human, the best tools to live their best life. It does not mean that he's Jesus or that he is somehow this perfect machine that is impervious to the human condition. Yeah. That being said, I have no doubt that as he's going through what he's gone through, that he's using his own rules to fix himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of it. And, and by the way, that's why we shouldn't, even though I think you should try to find a mentor, we do need people to map a future version of ourself after. Uh, Michael Shermer, by the way, who you spoke to last week mm-hmm. um, and who introduced us, mm-hmm. um, I, I love Michael. He, he's been a, from the first time I had him on the show, I thought this is someone who thinks clearly. We have a couple of disagreements. It doesn't even matter what they are, but he's a, I know him to be a good man and an interesting person, all those things. So we need people in the world that yeah. we can map that sort of thing after. But, but you should be uh, always wary of thinking that they're perfect because yeah. there are no perfect people. And, and the, the, you know, the simplest way of saying this would be, can, can you separate the art from the artist? You know, I mean, that's really it. Like you can, you can make a piece of art that's absolutely brilliant and could express a deep, deep truth it doesn't mean the perfect right. the person that painted it no, is perfect. often the opposite. Yeah. Exactly. And, it's often, and it's quite often the opposite, yeah. In the book, uh, and this and this, I don't necessarily want to get into, but you obliquely kind of comment about, you know, fatherhood in, in your life now that you're and your husband are planning this. Uh, but you also kind of obliquely reference your own father. Again, I don't want to get into that. But I think part of being mature is is that recognition that you just mentioned about your parents, about um, about your mentors, about your heroes, uh, that they are human beings. And, and this book is kind of the hero's journey of how you went in on this role and 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 this and this journey uh and part of the hero's journey you may know you know from star wars or whatever is that yeah your your parents you have to leave your your yoda and and you have to become on your own and i wonder looking at jordan looking at this experience from someone who from all appearances seems so earnest and interested in helping people and yet has such vitriol as you said um you know coming back at him uh, and he's yet very poised and dignified as you talk about in the book from his dress to his um uh you know to his mannerisms the way he treats the waiter and the cat um there's a story, uh, there's a, a passage in, in George Orwell's Animal Farm from uh, Benjamin the donkey. And he says, uh, the donkey is being envied, I think, by the pig or something. And the pig says, you're so lucky you got this awesome tail. Uh, and, and the donkey says, yeah, the Lord gave me a tail to swat away the flies, but I'd rather not have the flies and not need the tail. And I wonder, looking at Jordan, looking at these people that you, you know, like, do you worry about getting too big or getting cultivating, you know, such a, such a, a a persona and aura through your projects, your company uh, and through the Rubin report? Uh, Do you worry that there is a flip side of this? Maybe you won't be able to take this Sabbath, this, this detox and, and do the self care that you need, or especially as you bring a child into the world, um, you know, it's awesome responsibility and it's an incredibly maturing uh, thing, uh, hopefully experience for, for parents. Do you worry about the implications? You're, you're sort of, you know, attaching them. You won't be able to do as much. You'll have to be, you know, if in order for you to say yes to things like going on a world tour or whatever, you'll have to say no to this precious little infinite, you know, spark of, 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 of love and how are you prepared to cope with it? Or is that something you, you know, you I, I with think, this? I think about it all the time, mm-hmm. all the time, you know, just related to the, let's say the fame part yeah. of this. Look, I'm not going to sit here and say, I have no ego and I'm not going to say here. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not nice when, um, you know, when I get a lot of retweets or that, you know, already we know the book has sold really well before it's even out or all of those things. I'm not going to pretend those things aren't nice. 
I like when people come up to me on the street and at the supermarket and whatever, not every moment of it, you know, first off, you know, this is an interesting thing for, you know, we live in a time where there's so much hate online, but I can truly tell you that I think with, with one half of an exception, anyone who's ever come up to me in real life at a supermarket or at a movie theater or at a pizza joint, whatever it is, these are, these are great people who just want to say hi and say, oh, you know, you had a little something to do with my life or I dig what you're doing or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love all of that. But I can tell you that as someone that is, I suppose, on that, on that upside of, of the bigger thing, um, I am worried about that at some level. Like, I don't really have a desire to be more famous than I am right now. I, I don't have, like, that hole in me that needs to be filled. If, if anything, I would prefer the reverse, actually. Mm. I really like the work that I'm doing, and I view the public part of it. Look, I'm on camera. When I interview people, I'm on camera. You put a book out there, you're going to be seen and read and heard and all of those things. Um, but in a way, it's almost like a... It's a, it's a nice bonus, but you don't want it to be, it's like a dopamine. Yeah. The dopamine hit. That's the thing. It's a treat, but you don't want to indulge on the treat all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and I hope that I'll be able to navigate it properly. You know, fortunately, because of some of the people who we've mentioned here, I've seen some guys go through this beast before Mm. and I've seen some of the mistakes and I've seen some of the successes and I'll, I'll try to navigate it the best I can. But yes, will it affect all of the things of my future life about how much I can be around for a child or, or I mean, you know, things that you don't want to talk about safety concerns and all sorts of other stuff. Mm. These are all, these are all things that, that I do bounce around and and think about, but I, but I guess what I would say is more than anything else, whatever the, whatever the concerns are, whatever the trepidations are, the worries are, none of them would supersede my desire to do what I think I'm supposed to do. Mm. I, I wouldn't let a fear beat me out of doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing. And that is just this. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really the point of life. You know what I mean? Um, you have nothing to fear but fear itself, right? What does that really mean? It means you're supposed to go. You're supposed to move forward in life. Mm -hmm. And fear is what can stop you. It doesn't mean that that having some level of fear, fear, by the way, can push you, right? But what you don't want is fear to be here and you're pushing through. And the second you get to fear to cow away because you don't know what's over there. And, and, you know, I'll I'll continue to do the best I can. But I think that's all that anyone with their head on straight is doing. Yeah, I think you're right. And just to touch on that, I learned from uh, the great uh, rabbinical sage, Carrie Underwood, uh, that, uh, which is actually true. I, I actually looked this up. The most often repeated uh, phrase that God tells either Moses or the Israelites in the Old Testament in the Torah is, uh, do not fear. And it's interesting, you know, do not fear the stranger, do not fear the alien, you know, and serve, et cetera. And I think that is true. Fear is an impediment. Uh, and just to your point, uh, I read somewhere Bill Murray once was asked, you know, I want to be famous, you know, and he's like, and do you have any tips to be famous? And he was like, try being rich first, because <laughs> being rich, huh. you know, and I hope to find that out someday, but, 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 you know, but uh, I hope you do too. <laughs> well, very quickly, uh, for people that maybe don't want to read the entire Bible to get that point across, you could just watch what I think is Albert Brooks's best movie, Defending Your Defending Life. Defending Your Life, yeah. And it, the <laughs> whole purpose of the book Uh, sorry, of the movie, is that he ends up in purgatory, he's dead, and the only way he can move forward is that he has to prove, and the movie is about a trial of his life, he has to prove that he's conquered fear. It's, it's, a, it's an absolutely wonderful movie. I, I think it's his best movie. And, and that concept that you have to defeat fear, uh, I think it's a very human thing. Yeah. Um, I wonder, I have about uh, eight to 10 questions or so. Do you have time to, to go uh, for another 10 I've got minutes? whatever my guy has said. So. All right. Okay, good. Yeah. So I'll, I'll speed it up a little bit. Yeah. I want to talk about um, uh, tactics now. So we, we discussed your digital detox tactics, uh, which I think could be a book in itself. Um, what about uh, public speaking? How did you prepare your you've done stand-up comedy. Uh, do you think that there's sort of this meta skill stack that, you know, goes into, uh, you know, tips, you know, things to be a comedian involve convincing emotion, connection. Are those uh, tactics that you can then bring into writing or the converse? Is that true? What tactics? Um, yeah. I, I, you know, it's interesting because I think everybody has a different skill set. Everybody has a different toolkit. For me, you know, I could just get up there. I was never nervous on stage, really. I'm not saying I never had any nerves, but like it, the nervousness or when you hear, you'll hear comedians or, or public speakers talk about the nerves and they couldn't get on the stage. They couldn't get out of their bed. They were freaking out. I never had any of that. I would kind of walk on stage. And in a weird way, 
I felt very empowered. And I even do now when, when I was on tour with Jordan and, and you know, the PA announcer would say, and now the host of the Rubin report, Dave Rubin and 3000 people applaud. And you walk <laughs> out there with a microphone. What an incredible feeling that is. I, I mean, know. that, that I, I remember the first night that it happened because I, I mentioned this in the book that it was a surprise that I was, it was a test show yeah. really that Jordan was running out here. And I said to him right before, you want me to come on and make a couple of jokes? And he said, yeah. And I went up and they announced my name. The crowd didn't know I was going to be there. I had no idea if these people even knew me, right? Jordan's way more famous and, and important than I am. And once that first time happened and I felt that, it filled me up. Mm. And, and you can run with that. So I would say it's, it's really, it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. If you really have stage fright, well, you got to work through that. I think the best thing you can do and I always try to do this in stand-up, and I try to do this in, in everything I'm doing, including an interview or, or, or when I'm being interviewed or when I'm interviewing someone else, is I try to be as present as possible. Mm -hmm. And if I'm really doing it well, I'm not even trying because I, you just are. Yeah. And I don't, you know, when I give talks now, one of the things that I was most impressed by with Jordan is he would give a different hour and a half lecture every night. I mean, it's <laughs> incredible. He would give a rule. Sometimes he would talk about all, all 12 rules. Sometimes he would talk about one rule. Sometimes he would talk about no rules. He'd talk about what his day was like. And one of the things that I've, I think I was able to incorporate in the last year and a half post working with him on this is that when I give talks right now, usually I don't think about it during the day. If I have to give an hour talk, let's say at a college, I don't think about it at all during the day. For a few minutes before the talk, I kind of just take a breath and I'm like, what is on my mind right now? Mm. And if I, for me, if I get that starting point right, just the, the basic starting point of where I want to go, then the, the end point, it gets there. I usually, I never have an ending set in mind when I give a talk. I have the starting point and I'll figure out how to get there. You build a parachute uh, but, on the way down. Yeah, yeah which maybe, <laughs> maybe in some ways, but you know what? Maybe that's not the safest thing to do, but for me, it's, I think it's the most um, expressive to, to get the best self of me out. That being said, there are some people that are, that are perfectly good public speakers who I hear that give the same speech over and over. I just mm. can't do it. Yeah. I just can't do it. And that's what I mean about the toolkit and, and people being wired differently. I remember hearing, you know, this words of praise from a comedian about the comedian Louis C.K. Um, and, you know, he's had his problems, but this isn't relevant to that. But he said something like, yeah, guy writes new material every year. And I was like, you know what would happen if I wrote new material every year? You know, it's called <laughs> unemployment. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. Wow, every year. That's, that's pretty impressive. But uh, there, there's a great moment. There's a great moment in the uh, Seinfeld when the show ended. He did a documentary called Comedian. Comedian, and yeah. It's about him getting back into stand-up. And there's a moment where he's in the car with Gary Shandling. And they were really best friends and, yeah. and brothers in comedy. And they're talking about their process. And Jerry, you know, he's got his notes. And, it, and, and you know, they're just every word, every inflection, every, it's all just there. And he says, Gary, what about you? And Gary pulls out this crumbled piece of paper and he's like, I don't know, I scribbled this down. And it's like, they're both brilliant comics, but they have, they have different brains. Right. I think one, one tip, I'll just say it in the interest of time that I take to heart and I agree with wholeheartedly that you brought up that you learned from Jordan, your mentor, Jordan, is to dress up. You know, the feeling that you had of putting on, you know, look, you don't have to dress up. You could be wearing, you know, shorts and, the, you know, uh, flip-flops for all I know. And you talk about that's your basic, you know, uh, plumage when you were off, off stage and even sometimes on stage. But you learn from him that, you know, part of it is looking the part and looking the being professional, even if your job is the professional gesture. So I thought that was one of that, the hacks, the talking points that they'll make people it just breeds an air of confidence when a man or woman gets on stage to give a, to give a talk be, I want to finish up, yeah I want to finish up with what I call the the final five just a rapid fire series of questions uh, that are kind of standard across from my listeners um, so the first thing is that I've always felt that you know uh, as close as we have to kind of DNA at least as as you know creative uh, homo sapiens is is our books you know and books have this uh, ability to be transmitted our, our our ideas, if not our DNA, our, our memes, if not our genes into the future. Uh, so one question I'd be curious about, would you rather have a uh, hundred readers of this book or a thousand readers of this book a year from now, or one reader of this book a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, should, should we make it that long? <laughs> I love the meme and gene conversation, right? Because I, I think it's just so cool. Some people can spread their genes. Some people can spread their memes. I love looking at the world through that. Yeah. Hopefully I'm, hopefully I'm going to do both if oh, everything yeah. works, if everything works out right. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Yes. I, I would say right now, because of the, what I would say is a truly unique time right now, 
I would want as many people as possible to take this book in right now. I think the thing that I'm most proud of is I wrote this thing way before Corona, but so many of the issues that I'm talking about in this book, I mean, look, just, I'll just give you one because I know you want to do this quick. I mean, the state's rights issue that, I'm, that I so focus on here, which is, which is what our founders wanted. A month ago, nobody was talking about states' rights. Everyone's talking about states' rights now because there's an actual crisis. Yeah. So I want people to read this now so that they can think about how we're going to move forward clearly because we, we better think about it. Otherwise, we're in a lot of trouble. And speaking of, you know, readers, uh, not, not in, the, uh, in the deep future, but in the present, if you had a choice, you had to choose one group, who would you rather read this book cover to cover, uh, you know, the haters or the fans? I think the fans deserve the book. <laughs> okay. I, I think okay, the, fans, the, the fans deserve a little cover for some of their ideas and they, and they deserve it. Uh, I'm always down to, to talk to the haters if they'll do it respectfully, <laughs> although they don't, they don't often, but I've given enough to the haters. Yeah. Uh, so last couple of questions. Um, what are you most pessimistic about? You said you're kind of a guarded optimist, you know, um, you're three quarters of a glass full, perhaps. Uh, what are you most pessimistic about? Well, I'm just worried that with all of the success that we've had as a society, that the Western world has had, that maybe the sad, depressing truth is that we've grown too fat on our success. We've grown too fat on our, uh, our wondrous prosperity and that the guardians will be at the gate and to loosely quote Douglas Murray, we'll be debating what gender pronoun to call them. That we will have so lost the goal that our eye will be looking elsewhere as all the bad ideas come in. And I think maybe that actually gets to your earlier question about why are all these books suddenly out there? Why are these voices suddenly out there? Because the like, maybe this is the last stand. Maybe. Mm. That would be pessimistic, yes. Um, so uh, if you were an optimist, uh, if you were a pessimist, I'd ask you what you're optimistic about. But uh, instead, the penultimate question is uh, a, f a favorite quote of mine from the, the great uh, thinker, writer, Soren Kierkegaard, who said that life can only be understood backwards, but you must live it forwards. And I'm curious for you, what aspect of life in your 20s was mysterious, uh, fraught with fear, perilous, seemed mysterious, that now you look back through the telescope of time and, uh, and, you, and you have clarity that you'd like to communicate to that former version of yourself? You know, I think if I could have said anything to myself in my 20s, if I could meet myself in my 20s, and CGI can do it now, so I'm sure some of the, some of the meme makers <laughs> will, be, will be on it ASAP. Um, I think... You see, it's, it's interesting because I don't have any regrets, truly. It's not to say I haven't made mistakes along the way, but I think overall the mistakes were just part of the tapestry that, that led to something good, that led to something with purpose and all that. So I don't, I don't have regrets in, in a traditional sense, but I perhaps wish that I had been a little bit easier on myself. I, mm. I think I would have told myself to take a breath, that this whole thing has happened before and it's going to happen again. And, and be more accepting of my flaws and my faults and to really bring it back to, to the beginning of the book. You know, uh, you know, I did a lot of stuff that I'm not proud of when I was in the closet and it's hard to live one life, much less two or three. Mm. Um, and I think I would have, I would have done things differently if I could have, and I would have maybe sat myself down and said, Hey, listen, you can either be yourself or, you can see what's going to happen. And uh, I think most people, and it has nothing to do with sexuality. It's like, be yourself. That's, yeah. that, that's the message. Yeah, that's that was message one, of my, in, yeah. Mm -hmm. one of my favorite aspect, uh, quotes from the book is uh, where you say just this, to be authentic. And it's not just because I'm a practicing cosmologist, then uh, you'll know why. It says, as if that isn't enough, staying closeted also changes your relationship with reality. That's because every time you're inauthentic with the universe, you're disrupting your experience of it. And I think that nicely couples to what you just said. So um, I, I found the very same thing in my field. It was, you know, my ambition to win the Nobel Prize and really seeking that it became an idol for me. And once I realized that uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't so, it really was this naked emperor, so to speak, I felt deeply liberated and, and almost that kind of, uh, you know, uncloseted uh, feeling if I, can, if I could even relate to it. So the last question yeah. I have is uh, what you've become, you know, is obviously pundit, uh, a thinker, now an author, um, what you do and your, and your skill set, um, is that, how much of that was innate and how much of that creativity, imagination, curiosity, do you think can be taught? Some, some guests say it can be taught. Some say it's innate. Where do you come down on that, uh, in that spectrum? 
You know, it's interesting. I can answer this question more clearly having written the book because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is growing up in a family where we debated and argued everything and every holiday. And I'm sure you have your own version of this as well. But I mean, this is the thing, you know, you have four Jews at a table, you have five opinions. So every holiday we had, whether it was Passover or it was Thanksgiving, it was like everybody was kind of arguing over everything, fighting over everything. There was yelling, whatever. And then dessert would be served and everybody would just kind of forget it. And it was like the next day, my dog's going crazy right now, um, in, case, in case you heard that. Um, but we would just sort of reset the next day. So I think some version of my tolerance for ideas, my ability to debate, my ability not to hate people because they think different things comes from that. And then I would say the other part is that because of what I've done for the last five years, interviewing thinkers that have thought about all of the stuff that we have talked about here very, very deeply, and I haven't judged whether I've had, you know, Bishop Barron from the Archdiocese, a Catholic priest in here, or Rabbi Wolpe from the, uh, you know, Temple Beth's... Sinai, uh, Sinai uh, Temple. Sinai, Sinai Temple, thank mm -hmm. you. Um, or, or a skeptic like Sam Harris, or whatever it is, that I've sat with these people and treated them as individuals who are on the experience of life. I've actually taken pieces from all of them. So people will say, well, Ruben, how can you be friends with Shapiro? He's a homophobe. And it's like, he has a worldview that he's not He's not imposing on me. I can learn something from him, and I have. And by the way, I think he's learned something from me too. Yeah. And I think, so it's, it's both. I think I've, I had an upbringing that allowed for some of this to happen. And then as an adult, I applied those things to people that had great swaths of knowledge that I've, able to, that I've been able to incorporate into a life that is you know, pretty decent. Well, uh, Dave, thank you so much. This has been a really uh, stimulating, fascinating uh, discussion. I, I like to take a couple of seconds just in what I call the plug zone to mention people can find you at the Rubin Report. Uh, and also your book has its own website, Don't Burn This Book, the title of the book. Uh, and you can also get it from penguinrandomhouse.com as well. Uh, anything else you want to you wanna promote? You mentioned the locals. Um, yeah, no, listen, I, I really enjoyed this. As I said, I think you, you sort of take like the high level stuff and you go a couple layers deep, which is, which is really nice. And, and that's actually the whole purpose of everything that I do. So it's, you know, being on a, on a book tour while I'm sitting in this is my garage <laughs> yeah. where I thought I was going to be meeting all these people in real life and bouncing around and all that. Um, I think it, there's, a, uh, there's a particular nicety to, to finding some of the interviews that are a little different and a little quirkier. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. So I yeah. appreciate you reaching out. Well, thanks very much. Let me know when you do your next big project. Maybe you're going to do a Netflix special or something so I can short the market. Well, I know for sure what I'm going to do next is walk my dog because he's giving me the signal of it. <laughs> okay, great. All right, Dave. All right, Have a wonderful day. Bye. Good luck with the book and uh, keep in touch. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego in the Division of Physical Sciences. Directed by Eric Beery. Brian Keating, and Patrick Coleman, produced by Stuart Volgo. For more information, go to imagine.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD.